Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 117 of Pop Culturally Deprived, where each week we watch a movie I've never seen before, which is most of them, and talk about the good, the bad, and the violent. This week, we're going to be talking about The Godfather Part 3 on your Treachery is Everywhere podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Now we're into like big numbers. I keep wanting to look up what the numbers are and doing things. I was like, oh, 117, that's a really important number. I mean, it's a really important number in the world of Halo, but that's probably not for most people. <laughs> not for me. Yeah. <laughs> I spent too much time playing video games. <laughs> oh, I've been doing that recently. Hmm. Last night, I said, so I've started playing Tom Clancy's Division 2. Okay. And when I sat down last night to play, like, it tells you up front how many hours you spent playing, and it was at, like, five and some change. When I logged off, it was at 13. Oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't realize I had played it that much yesterday. Crikey. <laughs> Oops. I like being able to see how much I've played, spent time on something, but so many games, like, still count it when you're on pause or, you know, mm. in another app and stuff. Yeah. That's my excuse. Well, um, yeah, okay. So, The Godfather Part 3. The Godfather Part 3. Uh, th- this was one of the big, big films that we did, the first Godfather. We returned to the second one last year, and now we're hitting up the third one. Because we hadn't finished it. Mm. I'm a completionist. Can't start it and not finish it. Absolutely. But we have done them a fair, you know, pretty regularly apart. I think so, yeah. Mm. So I think I think you're coming back to this in the right place. I'm, I'm not sure it's something that can be done like all three together? Oh, good lord, no! Hmm. It's a bit. That heavy. would just be hard. Yeah, that's heavy and intense, and so much TV. Hmm. Right, I'll let you give some context, and then we can dive into that side of it. Okay. Um, the Godfather Part Three is the final installment of the Godfather franchise, written by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, also directed by Coppola. He never intended there to be a third movie. He felt the first two told a complete story. He only agreed to take on the third one after his 1982 failure of the romantic musical One from the Heart. To that end, he calls this film an epilogue to the story rather than an actual third part. Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, and Talia Shire all reprise their roles, but Robert Duvall is notably missing. He refused to come back unless his salary was comparable to Pacino's. And as a result, Tom Hagen's character died before the events of the movie. Andy Garcia and Sofia Coppola were added as Michael's nephew and daughter. An early draft of the script focused on Michael's son, Anthony, but it was scrapped and Coppola completely rewrote it because he felt that the Godfather saga is Michael's story about how a good man becomes evil, and he wanted the final chapter to show that Michael had never really paid for his sins. The film was met with mixed reviews, but it was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Best Picture, Director, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Andy Garcia, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, and Best Song. It is the only film in the trilogy that did not garner Al Pacino a nomination or win any of the awards. It is also the only film in the franchise that has not been selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. The only awards that it did win were Sofia Coppola's two Razzies for Worst Supporting Actress and Worst New Star. Well done, her. And it, it's funny the way you said um, Andy Garcia and Sofia Coppola as Michael's nephew and daughter, because Sofia Coppola played Michael's nephew in The First Godfather. Yes, I remember. She was the baby, yeah. She was the baby. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, Yeah. Um, I think it's also interesting that she also got two Razzies even after she redubbed probably like 20 or 30% of her dialogue 
because yeah. she it had gotten such bad reviews from test audiences. Okay. And even the redub did not go over very well. No. No. Honestly, she wasn't that bad, but she had no chemistry with Andy Garcia. Let's let's get into that in a second. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And just a final point, when you mentioned the Academy Awards, this, this does continue the streak that John Cazale, who plays Fredo, every film he is in is nominated for the uh, Best Picture. Oh, technically he was in this, wasn't he? Because mm, he died shortly after his, I think, fourth film. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say The Deer Hunter, but it might be Dog Day Afternoon, one of them. But yeah, they all got nominated. And then, so he's featured in this, and they still got nominated. Interesting. Yeah. Also, fun fact, this is only the second trilogy ever. Well, actually, this was the first one, but now there are two trilogies where all three installments have been nominated for Best Picture. Mm, Beverly Hills Chihuahua? (laughs) Uh, Uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, of course. The other one. (laughs) I was about to go for Twilight. Twilight's not a trilogy. Okay, cool. Uh, The movies. The the books are. The movies aren't. Fifty Shades, then. In, All right, insert your to, favorite bad trilogy here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back to The Godfather Part 3. Mm. Um, you know, since especially since Coppola is so insistent that the first two movies finished the story, I really didn't know what this one was going to be about. Mm. So in the midst of trying to legitimize his business dealings in New York City and Italy in 1979, aging mafia Don Michael Corleone seeks to avow for his sins while taking his nephew Vincent Mancini under his wing. Yeah, Yeah, that covers it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we could just say Michael got old and his nephew tries to take over. Yeah, had this been called something like the end of Michael Corleone, the death of Michael, something like that, I, I absolutely would have stood for it. Treated as a slightly separate thing, but like like you said earlier, the epilogue, the you mm-hmm. know, culminating moment of the story. Funnily enough, uh, Coppola really lobbied for it to be called the death of Michael Corleone yeah, well, exactly, and the studio yeah. wouldn't let him. No. I'm actually glad they didn't do that, though. At least from the perspective of watching it the first time, because I wasn't sure how this was going to end. I I wasn't sure if he was going to die, and if he did die, if it was going to be because he was finally killed, or he died like Vito, essentially. Right. I, I wasn't sure where the story was going to take us. And if it had been called the death of Michael Corleone, I would have been more interested in that than going on the journey it was mm. taking us yeah i wouldn't have liked the coda at the very end of him as an old man because right. that would have been like oh and then you show us the actual death okay it's mm-hmm. a bit weird um but had it been the end you know the the <laughs> finishing of the godfather something like that rather right. than part three saying that these are three anyway yeah. or even not even the physical death but just the the death of Michael is the head of the family. Mm, the death you know, of the like, godfather, symbolically, yes. yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, how were you able to watch this one? Still own the DVDs. Okay. Is it available for streaming over there? <laughs> I don't think so. That's why I had to buy the DVDs. Okay. The first time. I didn't recheck, but that's why I okay. bought the set. The yeah, like time. two years ago, so. Shh. <laughs> uh, I still own the Blu-rays and the DVDs, but I watched this on Sky Cinema. Because it meant I didn't have to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so much easier than having to get up open a box 
Put a DVD in. Sit back down. Well, the Sky Box boots up faster than the Xbox, and the Xbox is what I play Blu rays on. So, you know, it saves time. It does save time. <laughs> time and effort. Okay. Um, so, The Godfather Part 3, we finally made it to the end of this trilogy, as is. Uh, did you enjoy this one? I did. It's not as good as the first two, so I haven't come out of it raving the way I did the first one. Right. Because we both know the first one was shockingly one that I loved from our first year of podcasting. Um, but I do think it was a good ending to the story, to Michael's story. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, let's, let's get into to the first question, and that might take us somewhere. So, so one of the things that stands out to me is the um, reviews are generally quite generous to this film. They're generally quite, oh, yeah, you know, it's a Godfather film, and it's got all the classic things, and it's what we like, and, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily do them quite as well, but, yes, it is really, really good. Watching it, for me, and particularly the times that I've watched the trilogy, and I've watched the three in, in close succession, it stands out as a pale imitation of a Godfather film, is is sort of the way I generally can describe it. It's It's got good moments, it does some good stuff, but it is just trying to be the other two where it's not. And, and there was a time I used to think that was okay. Like, I used to think Airplane 2 was better than Airplane 1, because it had all the same jokes as Airplane 1, and then a few more. But actually, the delivery's not as good, the style's not as good, it's a bit throwaway. So you can see why the original was so good. Mm-hmm. In, in this, I have that same feeling as like, oh yeah, it's got, you know, a great opening sequence at a party, and everyone dies in the end, it's got some real, you know, high-level intrigue and dealings and stuff all the way through. But they're not as good. They 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 are... Well, we'll come in a minute about whether they should be there at all or not. But when I think about when this came out and when it was reviewed, we didn't really have VHS and DVDs and the access to movies in the in the way we think of it now. So I don't know whether the reviewers had the opportunity to revisit the Godfather films. If they're mm-hmm. trading on the fact they saw them 10, 15 years before and are now, oh, yeah, this is, you know, comparable to them. It's comparable to my memory of them rather than what they actually are. Mm-hmm. So coming at it, from obviously 2019 sensibilities we're looking at it as a trilogy we're not looking at it as two with one release 20 years later right do do you think it's possible to talk about this as a film on its own without comparing it to the other two i i I really don't think so just because this film it doesn't work as a standalone film right at all like you have to have the context of the previous two to understand what this movie is even trying to say and because of that there's no way to compare it or there's no way to not compare it honestly because you've already got the first two you've already seen this kind of story done really 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 well Mm. and and i think exactly how you said it 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 pales it's a pale comparison to the first two they they tried I mean, they followed the Godfather formula, like, pretty closely. Mm. And it just didn't quite do what the first two did. But I can still think that and also think it was a good ending to Michael's story. Okay. So there's no way of watching this and saying how successful, you know, separate from being a Godfather film and doing all the, the, in inverted commas, Godfather tropes, we can't watch this and say, oh, but it's an interesting gangster thing. No, because it okay. really wasn't an interesting gangster thing. Right. <laughs> I mean, the first two were interesting. The the stories that we told, the, you know, Michael, his character shifting from Vito's son, who has these 
world ideals and this kind of innocence to him to becoming Don Corleone at the end. The second one mirroring his life with his father and watching them try to maintain, I guess it's the rise and the fall of the Corleone family. You know, those two, they had stories they were trying to tell. This one didn't have a clear story that it was trying to tell. Right. And it was, it was more about trying to parallel Vinny's character to Michael's and doing it very, very poorly. And also trying to wrap up Michael's life in a way that felt morally satisfying Mm -hmm. and not succeeding, I think. Well, I'm, Gosh, I said I like this movie, and I think it's a good ending, and I'm still kind of razzing on it. <laughs> well, okay, so so I, I I think there is, like I say, a lot of good in this film. The way we mm-hmm. generally do our talk is we do a deep dive talk, and then we make sure we pick up our favorites. I think we're going to be pretty evenly split amongst them. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like there's some stuff we should put out and say, yeah, this film does not do that stuff well. Yeah, it it doesn't. So even more so than the normal kind of deep dive, let's talk about the characters and cinematography and all that kind of thing let's talk about the negatives the (laughs) anti-favorites okay um you two things you said there just as a throwaway you mentioned this being the rise and fall of the corleone family if this was called the fall of the godfather or the fall of michael corleone that would be a perfect title Mm -hmm. but you do make a good point that this is indistinguishable from not indistinguishable you, you cannot separate it inseparable from the first two so it does actually work if if it's setting out to be part three yes it absolutely is because you need to know about how he started off good he wanted to go legitimate he ended up as a gangster and now he's trying even harder to to clear the family name and buy legitimacy <laughs> yeah it does it does work but you made a comment there about the parallels between vincent and michael yeah. And that's really interesting. What do you see as the parallels or, or what they wanted to do and what they didn't do well? Okay, so maybe I, I can see how what I said could be confusing because there's not a parallel in that both characters started in the same place and ended up in the same place because Vinny obviously always wanted to be a thug. He was gung-ho from the beginning. Let's just kill them all, you know. But you you have... In both characters, you have someone starting out very unpolished and uncertain of their role and what this life actually looks like. And you get to see them transitioning in the way they speak, the way they move, the way they dress, the way they interact with other people. Mm. You get to see those changes in both characters until both of them end up as the new Dawn. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, the the transition, yes, that is an interesting parallel. I just don't think they did Vincent's as well. Um, it was there, and, and probably because it's Michael's story, not Vincent's story. That's probably why they didn't focus on it. But for me, whereas Michael's transition was earned, Vinny's was not. Yeah. And it, it may have been. We just didn't see it. We we got to see Michael's perspective of it. We didn't really get to see Vinny's perspective. And so we got to see snapshots throughout the process Absolutely. of Vinny. Mm. Um, and with Michael, we got to see start to finish. Mm. And I would rather have seen more of that if they had paralleled Vinny's rise with Michael's fall, yeah. kind of the way they did in part two with Vito and Michael. Mm. 
that would have been nicer, especially since they would have been happening in the same timeline. But this was the end of Michael's story, not the beginning of Vinny's. Yeah. Yeah, I I wish they had treated Al Pacino in this one the way they treated Marlon Brando in the first one. You know, you get some significant moments and scenes with him, but you don't follow him all the way through. It's much more about the sons. If they'd done a lot more about following Mary and Vinny, hmm, maybe that would have been really interesting. And occasionally they intersect and have these moments with uh, seeing Michael in action and going, okay, yeah, there's a clear difference between them. Yeah. But because they wanted this to be Michael paying for his sins, yeah, they focused on that instead. And I'm still not sure they really did that very well. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll come to that in a second. I, um, following up on the parallel thing, I, I, I have a problem with Vinny's character in the way he's written and what is he gets to do. I, I will say Andy Garcia is actually really good in this. Mm-hmm. I really like the characterization. I think he earns the Academy Award nomination. Very much. I think he is one of the stronger points of this. But it's supposed to be, you know, his loyalty and and some spark in him that makes Michael bring him under his wing. And I don't see that, certainly at at the point at which, you know, Michael does decide to bring him on. Mm -hmm. I I feel like there could have been something more to lean into that. And then seeing him shifting from being a thug into, into being the Don, it doesn't quite, it, it just seems to happen automatically rather than him actually learning as he goes through. Yeah, I, I think, though, and I, I don't know if we're supposed to infer this or if I'm just reading into it, but I think Michael realized at that point that he had nobody else to take over mm. because he, it was never going to be Mary. The patriarchy! <laughs> She's a girl. He was never going to do that. And he had just let... Anthony go. Anthony wanted to be an opera singer. And so he didn't have anybody else. And then all of a sudden he has Vinny Mm. who shows up and is just so excited about it. And so I think from that perspective, he realized somebody needs to step into these shoes and I can try and teach him. Mm. Yeah. and, And even that there's a better way of doing it if they'd used a line from him letting Anthony go. And, and had a similar line or the same line used by Connie or someone about Vinny, mm-hmm. it really would have sold it, I think. It's like, oh, yeah, they are sort of paralleling these two things. That's nice. I yeah. I, I, I do like, and, and again, you get a lot of this from Andy Garcia himself, that he is Sonny's boy. He oh, has yes. the temperament of his father. But now he's getting the education from Michael. So where Michael listened to his father and took things in, you're seeing Vinny doing the same to Michael. And so what would Sonny have been had he had that sharp edge? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I I forgot how hot-headed Sonny was in the first one. Mm. But you're absolutely right. That was one of the main things I noticed about Vinny from the beginning is his temper. Like, he's a little bit psychotic. Yeah. Right but- up front, out of the gate. And absolutely, I think playing that the way they did is a good callback to Sonny. Mm. And, and uh, like the whole bit with the guys coming to kill him, that's to show us that actually he's good at what he does. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this guy is capable. Um, he's not just a hot-headed thug, but also he's a hot-headed thug. So mm-hmm. if he listened, if he learned, and and you even get a point, you know, part way through with Al Pacino saying to him, you know, never let anyone know what you're thinking. Talk less. What? 
smile more <laughs> don't let them know what you're against or what you're for which i think is exactly what Marlon Brando said to Sonny you want to get ahead yes fools who run their mouths off wind up dead mm. so you know showing us these lessons but it goes in with him and he you know takes it on board that's nice and that is a, a very well done bit but we're not talking about the very well done bits yet <laughs> oh let's talk Sophia Coppola <laughs> yeah so she was a last minute cast edition she was indeed yeah they went through several iterations of this and I to, just, I to can't the extent imagine. she's not started playing the part yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I can't imagine how different this movie would have been if the original folks who were up for it had been hmm. the ones to do it like Winona Ryder was actually cast for this movie she showed up on set in december 1989 to start shooting this movie and she had some sort of nervous exhaustion from previous movies i guess she had just finished mermaids i think and so she just quit and she gave no notice and she left and so they had to exceptional i i really can't picture it i really can't like i want to but i cannot picture that okay I, I I think when I think of her in things like Beetlejuice, because mm-hmm. she she's very often she's quite contained, but there's a few times where she's been able to be a bit more lively. I think that really would have worked. I mean, is it just the thing they were looking to cast actresses with black hair? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. See, when I think of Mary's character, I think that she needs to have some sort of raw innocence to her because – you know, you see Mary questioning throughout this movie her father's actions, whether or not she's just a pawn or if she really is the face of this foundation. Mm-hmm. She really doesn't know what's going on. And you can see that she wants it to be real so badly. And I can't picture Winona Ryder having that sense of naivete. No, that is fair. I, I can picture her being Al Pacino's daughter, though. I, in okay, that yes, that is fair. Sharpness and wit and... She would have been more like Connie. Yeah. And Mary's character was not like Mm. Connie, though. Mm. So um, they also, after Winona dropped out, they tapped Julia Roberts to play it. But she had uh, scheduling conflicts. That one I can't see at all. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, Marissa Tomei, maybe. Oh, yeah. she. When you think of what she was like in Oscar. Yeah, she absolutely could have done it. Mm. It's really hard because she's she's not great in this. And it stands out because she's up against Diane Keaton and Talia Shire and, you know, Al Pacino, Andy Garcia. The people she's having to act with yeah. are actually very good at what they do. I mean, she was inexperienced. She was young. Yeah. But she's not terrible. I, I have seen worse in other films. And it's really hard because this is a film about daughters paying for the sins of their father. And there are other things in this film that are wrong. And I don't want to land it all on her when actually it's Francis Ford Coppola who could have done a lot of this better. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think you're right. Her, if you take her acting in a bottle, it's perfectly fine. Mm. It's ex- it, it, it's ordinary. It's not exceptional. Yeah. It's fine. But when you stick her in a room with Al Pacino and Diane Keaton and, like you said, you know, Andy Garcia, Talia Shire, like, she just, she was set up to fail. Yeah. But good on her for doing it. And, you know, this not being the last thing she ever did. Right. Because she's done some interesting stuff since. So 
We mentioned earlier about the Godfather tropes. Mm-hmm. Things like the party at the beginning, everyone dies at the end, there's lots of dealings all the way through, there's an assassination in the middle. Even things like when they take a, par- a photo at the party, the Godfather stops it to get someone else brought in. This kind of thing. It, it really does tick the boxes of what have been in Godfather films of the past. It reminds me of Star Wars. Star Wars films open on a ship above a planet. They R2-D2 saves the day. Someone says, I've got a bad feeling about this. It ends in a moment, uh, a whole sequence of with no dialogue. And, and I feel in Star Wars that has hindered the films in some ways. It stopped them telling the story. I mean, there's other things that have hindered Star Wars mm-hmm. films in the past, but that have stopped them, you know, because you have to tick these boxes off. And I feel a little bit like this. I feel mm-hmm. the party at the beginning is a little forced. Certainly the ending is overdone. I don't feel like they needed to kill suddenly everyone <laughs> just because. But that's, that's my feeling because I compare this to, to the way other things did it. Did, did it stand out to you the way they were using these things? Oh, no, it absolutely did. Um, I feel like this, rather than telling a story in its own right, they wrote a story that fit the boxes. Mm. And I, it suffers for that, I think. The party at the beginning, it didn't need to be quite what it was. I mean, it, it did set up the plot point of the Vatican Bank and all of that stuff. So, okay, fine. The orchestrated hits... They did that in the first one. They did that one in the second one. And you kind of feel like it wouldn't be a Godfather movie without it. But it didn't work as well for me because this movie was far less a mob movie than the first two. Okay. Like this movie was about Michael trying to legitimize himself. Yeah, it's a business thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely a business deal. It was not a mob deal. Like the stuff with Joey Zaza, yeah, absolutely mob stuff. But... Killing the Archbishop and, you know, the the other people surrounding the business deal with Immo- – was it Immobilare? Is that what it was called? Yes. Like, that didn't make sense to me. And it felt like they did it just to check the box. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't work. Yeah. When, when he sat down at his typewriter, I think he – Went, right, what are the things I need to go through? How do I do this? Oh, there's this interesting bit where the Pope died after a week. Hey, could we bring that in and do some interesting stuff? Mm-hmm. In in the same way, I think certainly in the second one, they used the Cuban Revolution and kind of knowing what was coming. Mm-hmm. So I think help inform the story a bit. They use it in this with suddenly the Pope falls ill, a new Pope comes in and then he dies, which, which happened in real life to kind of, mm-hmm. oh, but it was a mafia inside thing of... Uh, a little much and and i think what's what's a real shame about it is the second one whilst it does things from the first one like having a party like having the organized hits at the end like having all the dealings all the way through it kind of throws out the rule book by having the two time periods going on and and, and showing you the film in a different way than you'd seen other films do before Mm-hmm. That's that's the reason why The Godfather 2 is considered so good, because it's got the father and son at the same age with different stories. Right. But stories that do come together. Whereas in this one, they've absolutely stuck to the rule book. You know, imagine if the re- reviews of this were, it throws out the rule book, the party comes at the end, the organized hits open it, and you don't know what's happening, and you've got to run to catch up, and there's interesting things happening with the new generation coming in, and... 
it's, see, it's that a, would have been a story that I would have liked to see more. I mm. think, like, let's see the changing of the guard. Let's keep it Michael's story, but let's add to it. Yeah, that would have been a better story, and they probably would have won the Oscar for it. Well, <laughs> like, I feel like it was nominated just because it's a Godfather film. I I fully agree with that. Yeah, what did win? I did not oh, look okay. that up. Okay. But I just know this one won nothing except for Razzies. Uh, it won, what one was Dances with Wolves. Oh, okay. I support that. Yeah, yeah that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other films nominated, Awakenings, Ghost, and Goodfellas. Uh, okay, yeah, they, they are all very, very good films. <laughs> so that's a hard one to pick from. Yeah. But yeah, particularly because Hollywood loves trilogies, it loves, you know, things happening that mm-hmm. it's been able to celebrate before. If this had been a great film. Yeah, they would have given it to this. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I have a question for you. Go on. Since we're kind of speaking about things that don't make sense or okay. that just didn't work. Yeah. What was the point of Bridget Fonda's character? Mm. Like, I finally figured out just from reading things after I watched it that she was Grace. Her character's name was Grace Hamilton. Right. And so I think she was the daughter of the new Tom Hagen. Is that who she was? No, because he was played by George Hamilton. Oh, you're right. I'm getting my Hamiltons mixed up. So then I don't know who Grace Hamilton is. Like, what What was the point? She was there. They set her up to be somebody who mattered. And then we never saw her again. <laughs> um, Yeah, it's a bit... I think there's a couple of reasons to have her there, which are possibly fair. There's, on the one side, um, showing that Joey is popular with the ladies. That's another Hamilton reference for you. We're reliable with the ladies. <laughs> do you mean Joey or do you mean Vinny? I mean Vinny. Did I say Joey? You said Joey. Okay, I meant Vinny. Um, the, the one she sleeps with. The, the dark-haired guy with the hazel eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's that, which I think they do elsewhere as well, so she's not really necessary for that. I think it's to give him an interesting way of, of taking care of the guys who come to kill him in a, it shows that he's actually quite smart in the way he deals with it. And and I think that that sequence does work very well. I think it does a lot for the character, but on the flip side, that sequence opens with her going, Hey, Vinny, do you love me? Yeah. Yeah. I love you. Now give me a drink. Like if it's supposed to be a one night stand, she wouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. And if it's supposed to be a long-term relationship, we don't see her again. <laughs> right. So and he's immediately work. like in love with Mary, his cousin, which is a whole other thing. I was going to be so watching it. My brain was just trying to figure out what was happening because she's a reporter. She was trying to get information on Michael up front. And so my immediate thought was, is Vinny actually trying to take Michael and the family down? Is that why he's dating a reporter? Okay. Like that's the direction I thought it was going to go. Right. In. And then we never saw her again and he takes over. Yeah. So I just still, I don't understand why she was there. Hmm. Um, And if she really was there just to be a victim of the attempted assassination, then that's even worse. Yeah. Yeah. She's damseled and that's about it. Yeah. 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 Super damseled. And, and, And the whole, you know, her as a journalist at the party at the beginning is quite good. You know, I like her persistence in asking the questions and trying to get the interviews, but Mm -hmm. yeah, as a character, she comes to nothing. So there was probably a neater way of doing that whole thing. Okay. It just didn't work. Can I ask you a bit about the opera? Sure. So so we've mentioned Anthony 
uh, tangentially, but obviously the the big ceremony thing at the end is them all going to the opera to see his first performance in Sicily. Did the paralleling of the opera and the actual drama of the movie itself work? Did it add to it? Did it heighten the tension of the whole thing? It didn't. It felt very much... I mean, obviously I picked up on it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they were not subtle about it at mm. all. Um, even down to the point of Connie lifting her wrap-up over her head after yeah. Mary gets shot. Exactly, like, shot for shot what the actress in the opera did. Um, so it wasn't subtle. But all it did was it served as, to me another box to check because they were trying to do the same thing there that they did with the baptism scene. Yeah. In and the, the first the, one. Yeah, the mother's funeral in the second one, I think. Is yeah. It, it it was, let's have this big, amazing celebration, this monumental thing that's happening or funeral in the second one. And let's intercut it with these very high stress murders, mm. you know, and, and other things that are going on. And so it, it felt too grandiose, I think. Mm-hmm. And and I think part of that is just by virtue of it being an opera. That's Operas are grandiose yeah. when you've yeah, got yeah. The, the sopranos yeah. and the tenors just like screaming. Yeah, the, the opera is suitably grandiose. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I think for me, it, it was just too much. I mean, I did enjoy some of the parallels of the story, like, you know, the ear biting (laughs) yeah, and Andy Garcia's reaction. That was nice. But (laughs) overall, it it was just too much. I feel like this movie was too, and I know we've said this, it's just too formulaic. Mm. And they tried to be bigger and better. And by not allowing themselves any freedom away from the formula, they became that pale comparison that you mentioned up front. Because they they were stuck. Mm. Yeah, f- fully agree. Again, there, there's probably a, a more subtle way of doing it. Maybe even open with the opera. And then have them all leaving. And then at the very end, cut back to that moment. And, and it turns out you showed us the ending, but without seeing the assassinations or something. Mm-hmm. So, but then we don't have it directly following. That's part of the problem. It is, they show us the opera, and then they show us the same sorts of things happening in real life. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, give a bit of space between them so it doesn't feel so forced. Yeah, I think that's the other reason why I preferred the baptism scene is because it was two different things, very, very different that they were cutting between. Mm. You know, a baby's baptism and assassination attempts or yeah. actual assassinations. And with this, it was, we're going to show a mob family in Sicily on stage in the opera while the mob family is actually doing assassinations. Yeah. And yeah. it just didn't work. Yeah, in in the first one, it's lovely because it's the symbolism of him becoming the godfather by becoming a godfather and becoming the godfather by mm-hmm. ordering the deaths of all his enemies. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and if it had been, we open with the opera and then at the end, we cut back to the opera and it turns out they all, you know, there, there was an assassination at the opera. I feel like I go, oh, and isn't it ironic they were watching a thing about the same sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> I think that's the last of the things I, I, I grouch about. And it, it's difficult because they are not small things. You know, the, the, the writing sticking so much to the, to the previous stories, the, uh, you know, on the nose, like you say, it's just so forced. Some of the symbolism, 
some of the acting not being up to scratch, some of the writing of the characters not being up to scratch, they're not small things that we could fix very easily. Right. Without making it as a different film. But I think what he was trying to do Mm -hmm. is really good. And I think I can still see those threads in it, which is why I say I like it. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. There is stuff in here that's like, oh, it's, it actually does it really well. Again, in seeing in that first film, him trying to be legitimate and it just, the world conspires against him. You get exactly the same feeling here, but he's now only got one place. He's reached the tops. So there's only one place for him to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really good from that perspective. The Michael stuff, as, as we said with the Marlon Brando stuff, it's really good. Yeah. There's, there's, I don't think there's anything that's bad about his story in this. And, and the, the dealings with international immobiliary are big and highfalutin and the issues with the Pope who's then assassinated and so on. It's, you know, it's very big in the same way the Cuban stuff was. But the problem with the Cuban stuff is you then also had all the Senate hearing stuff, which for me right. was too much on the second one. Mm-hmm. This is the right amount of high level intrigue and affairs. Okay. I Do you think it was that. too much? I. I don't know. I didn't really think about it from that perspective. I was too busy thinking of the irony of Michael trying to go legitimate by buying kind of illegally mm-hmm. his share in this legitimate business. Like, he can't even do that right. <laughs> so that's that's where I kept my focus. Okay. It was kind yeah. of on how he was trying to become, quote, unquote, legitimate. Like, he was trying to get clean money, but he was doing it in a very dirty way. mm and, and dealing with men who are worse than he ever was. You know, the, the way they twist, uh, is it Lucchese who says back to him, you know, this is business, so we need to do business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, telling him this is not personal, you need to take this seriously. He says, okay, I'll do business with you. But then calls them the Borgias. Right. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, in the middle of the Vatican is pretty damning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good line. mm it was, and it to be, a good line. Yeah, to be overheard by someone who knows him. <laughs> <laughs> so is there stuff I, I don't I don't necessarily need you to lean into favourites, although obviously we have a lot of favourites as well. Uh what do you think this film does well? Character development with established characters. Right. So taking um, them into act three of their story. Yes. Okay. I think Kay's character development is probably my favourite. Okay. I didn't expect to see her in this movie after the way it ended. Right, yeah. After their relationship ended in part two. And so I was very pleasantly surprised to see her back and to see her having turned into this kind of fierce mama bear who's not afraid of Michael anymore Mm. was really, really nice. I mean, she literally said to him, I prefer you when you are just a common mafia hood. Oh, yeah. Mm. The K from... The second movie would never have said that to the Michael of the second movie. Yeah. And it was wonderful. And and she had like several moments like that throughout where she she stood up for Anthony not wanting to be in the family. She was in the room when they had that conversation. You know, and if you think back to the first movie, Vito would never have allowed his wife or ex-wife if she had been ex-wife to be in the room when he was having a conversation with Sonny or Michael about the family business. You know, and, and so for her to have taken that stand and saying, no, this is my child. I'm here for him. I don't care what you think. I'm going to do it. It's just wonderful. Yeah. 
Although Michael is actually different as well. I think in my thoughts doc, one of my notes was the Michael in this movie is not the same Michael as the one in part two. Oh, really? Because he's grown as well. And some of I think that was because of something he said or did while he took Kay to see the town in Sicily. Mm-hmm. Like he was, oh, what was it? I think he was talking about how everything he did, he did because he loved his family and he loved her and he wanted to protect them. You know, he became vulnerable in that conversation with her. And Michael has never shown vulnerability in in the previous installments. And yeah. and I don't know if that's something that has come with age, age and wisdom, mm-hmm. that he felt like he could finally do that. Or if it's a reflection, he's seeing things change and he's trying to explain why he was the way that he was. But it, it showed growth for both characters. And I really enjoyed that. Mm. I feel like with Kay, they often go to using her to show a gentler, more fun side of Michael, mm-hmm. which if, if, from the, the perspective of Michael as a character is, is a shame because um, they could do that in other scenes as well. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, in other scenes as well to give us a, a better characterization. But in those scenes, she doesn't give him any quarter. Like you say, mm-hmm. it's, it's really, you know, when, when, Oh, they're, they're having lunch and he threatens to stab himself in the neck if she gives him the order. And she just looks at him. She's like, what, what are you doing? No, let's not do this. She is not prepared to play his games anymore. Right. And it, it, it is really good. Her as a character in this is great. And I, I do like the gate giver a husband. He doesn't mm-hmm. get to do anything. He's missing for most of it. Right. But it shows she has moved on. She's been able to have a life of, of her own. Mm-hmm. Um, she is not dominated by Michael in the same way everyone else. You know, we've still got Neri around him. His bodyguard from all the other films is mm-hmm. still there carrying out orders for him. So, I, yeah, I love what we get of her for, for her sake. She's a, yeah. a really interesting um, addition to it all. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking about her her big speech to him when she leaves him in the end of two. Mm-hmm. And... You know, she did obviously have her own agency there because she's the one who chose to leave, but she did it out of fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, anger and fear. And we talked about in that movie how much we loved the things that she said to him, even though it was dark and horrible about wanting to, when you, when she lost the, the baby, the first mm-hmm. one, the second one, whichever, she lost a child and, and she was happy about it mm-hmm. because she didn't want to give him any more children. That's not the same level of agency and confidence that we see in Kay in this movie. In this movie, she's just, I, I don't know. She's, what's what's the word that I'm looking for? Do you know? Can you read my mind? I, I don't know. I mean, sh- he abducts her for part of the film. <laughs> <laughs> technically. Okay, technically, but I didn't read that scene that way at all. Well, no, no, absolutely. But yeah, if you're, if we're talking about her having agency and being not necessarily damseled or anything, but just mm-hmm. a, she's a MacGuffin to, to show as parts of his character that they don't know how to get him to show to anyone else. Um, right. It's, it's a shame, be, but even in those scenes, the way she's written, she isn't letting him be that way. She is still herself. Right. Right. She's good. not yeah. trying to hurt him out of fear the way she was in part two. Yeah. I think that's what it is. She's just allowing herself to feel what she feels and to speak her truth. Yeah. And that's different than how we saw her before. And I think that's what I'm trying to, to 
draw the comparisons between. Absolutely. I, I love her line when Anthony says no to him and she says he got that from you, that no. That is yeah. really good. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Going along with character development of established characters, Connie in this movie and the Connie in the first movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fundamentally different, but you can see how she got where she is. She is Vito Corleone's daughter. Mm. She absolutely is in a way that Mary never will be Michael's daughter. I mean, apart from the fact that she died, but <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, that's cold. <laughs> oh, you know what I mean, though. Mary was if Mary hadn't died, she was never going to have that part in the family business the way that Connie has. Mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah, that, maybe Mary is the young version of Connie, and eventually she would have gotten there. But yeah, that's that's the thing. I'm not sure. the The thing that's given me pause on that is just because Connie has ended up where she's ended up. Mm-hmm. Although we saw her certainly in that second one, you know, only coming home when she needs more money from him, and going off and having multiple, you know, different husbands and not caring about her children and everything. But she still ends up as the matriarch. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you mentioned early because she's a woman, she only has certain things she can do or she's only allowed in certain parts of the family. But even within that, she's the one who conspires with Vinny. She's the one who gets him in front of Michael. She's the one who uh, for- forces him to go through with the plot on Zaza. Mm-hmm. And she, she could absolutely be the Don. Yeah. I was struck by the the part where when Michael was in the hospital mm-hmm. and Vinny moved on his own. And when Michael is confronting him about it, he says, but I got the order from Connie. Yeah. You know, he was looking to Connie as Michael's stand in when Michael was out. Mm. It's good. It is very, very good. Yeah. Um, I am unsure if her killing Don Altobello was an order from Michael or if she did that on her own? That was unclear. Mm. I I don't know. And it's making me wonder, why don't we know? Why are we not shown or told that? Are we supposed to infer something? Because I, I almost feel like it was an order from Michael, but she said, I'll be the one to do it. I, I, is that what we're supposed to infer? That he, that great scene that you talked about with him in the hospital. And Michael says, you know, I rule this family right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make the decisions. And he says to him, you are not allowed to make a decision like that without me. And he forces her to say yes to him. You know, he mm-hmm. just stares at her until she goes, okay. And it's wonderful. I mean, that is a, you can see the power dynamics within it. What she wants and what she's not allowed to do comes across so well. So the fact that she's done something like that in the end. It's making me think we're supposed to think it is an order from Michael, but she's the one doing it. She is now carrying out his orders to the darkest level. Right, because she wouldn't do that on her own after they went through the trouble of that other scene. Yeah. Okay. Could you could you hear the cogs whirring there as I worked to that place? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I actually appreciate you talking that through me through that with me because I was honestly unclear because sh- they focused so much on her focusing on him. Don Altabello mm. and Michael just seemingly was completely oblivious to it. Yeah. And, and so I wasn't sure. But Talia Shire, uh, the the whole arc for Connie is probably for me the best of the, of all three films. I, I just love what she goes from in that first film where she's so happy on her wedding day 
and through an abusive marriage, through whatever she is in the second film, and then becoming a significant part of the family. I, I almost would love to have the, these stories from her perspective. Mm. You know, knowing that she's set up with Carlo in the, for the first one and that mm-hmm. she's basically told you're marrying this boy. He's part of our family and he's going to be important. Still being protected, still having to go and ask for money, never really being allowed to be part of the family and then eventually coming to what she comes to. Right. What more did she want and what forced her to end up in this position or, or made her feel she had to end up in that position? Mm-hmm. And Talia Shire herself is fantastic in this. Oh, yes. Yeah. The the bit where Michael says to her, you know, maybe they should fear you. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. scary. <laughs> she is a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So my other favorite part, I feel weird saying this was my favorite part, but I think it was done so well, was that final shot on the opera stairs mm-hmm. after the assassination attempt on Michael and Mary is the one who has been killed. Michael is sitting there cradling her body and the sound cuts out and you can see him screaming at the yep. top of his lungs. And after a few seconds, the sound cuts back in and you can actually hear that guttural scream and then it cuts to I don't even remember what it cuts to after that um but that scene is chilling yeah it's so it evokes such emotion I think that's the most emotion we've ever seen for Michael and it's Mm. absolutely deserved you know and Al Pacino you know there's this joke that now that I've started to see Al Pacino movies, that he's very, very shouty. He is very, you know, <laughs> and and he did get shouty like once yeah. in this movie, but then he gets this like just guttural raw scream, and he does it so well. Yeah, and and to have it silent, so like you say, you can just see that pained expression. And it's, oh, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so moving. And oh, I don't know if I'm going to say this. It's going to sound really harsh after everything I've said. Okay. Sophia Coppola's a really good corpse. <laughs> she absolutely <laughs> ragdolls when he's holding her and he's trying to, like, see some spark of life in her. Yeah. You feel like she's dead. She is gone. That's not an easy thing to do. So Right. Like, I, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm, you know, kicking her when she's down or something, but... Yeah, it's excellent. And you see Kay's pain, and that's really good. You see Vinny's pain, and that's really good. You see Talia Shire lifting the thing over her head, and that's not as good. Um, although it would be good if the opera had come much earlier. Mm-hmm. But Al Pacino is just amazing. And I, I can never decide whether the sound has been cut or whether it is a silent scream. I think the sound was cut because there was no sound. That's true. You couldn't hear Kay screaming. You couldn't yeah. hear anything else. But... I think it's implied that the strength of his emotion is just making them all stop. Mm. Let, let you say, wow, we've never seen this before. And, and the reason why I say that, I, I think you're right. I think it is that, that there's no sound there. The only reason that's, that makes me think that is in Home Alone, when Daniel Stein is on his back and there's a tarantula crawling across his face, he screams in largely the same way. Mm. He had to scream silently because if he screamed with actual noise, that tarantula would not enjoy it. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> there's an actual tarantula on his face. So right. he has to do that scream with no sound. So it's like, so it is possible for a good actor. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Stein is one of the best. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder why Al Pacino didn't get nominated for this one. 
Yeah, we've not talked about the aging makeup, but well, is the aging makeup good in this? It's not good in the last shot. No, okay, okay, no. That The very, very final piece is a bit much with all the liver spots and everything. No. Right. But he looks like a man who's in his 60s or 70s, mm-hmm. which I think he's meant to be when he was much younger. And I remember seeing interviews with him where they, where they talked about it, and he was like, yeah, People would come up, like, send me messages like, wow, you got old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was 50 when right. they filmed this. And I think he was meant to be late 60s, maybe. Okay. They did age him up really, really well. Mm. It was convincing. I mean, he's the only one who's really got that sort of, that sort of aging going on, I think. Yeah, they didn't age up Kay. They really didn't age up Connie. Yeah. I mean, they probably did a much. bit, but... I mean, they gave Connie the gray streaks in her hair, but... Yeah. So it says... So I'm, I'm just trying to work out how old he would have been. He enlisted in the Marine Corps in 41. So let's say he's 20 at that point. Mm-hmm. And this is 79. So, yeah, we'll put him about 60, maybe. Okay. Or maybe in his 60s. But Al Pacino himself was born in 1940... So he would have been fifty, yeah, okay. But like looking at looking at pictures of him even in later years, I can kind of like they they have done it so well. He is looking a bit like what he looks like. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember how we got onto that. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised he didn't get nominated for an Oscar. Yes, because he portrays a, a a man much older than himself who who goes through some significant health issues. And he portrays it really well. I mean, the 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 sequence where he has the stroke mm-hmm. is it's heartbreaking. It is, you know. And and I've never looked up what he says there because he does shout and and there's a hint that he's shouting his inner thoughts. You know, that whole thing of don't tell anyone what you're thinking. But he's shouting about what he thinks about Altabello. He shouts about his regrets about Fredo. Mm-hmm. I think he also shouts about thunder or something. I think so. Yeah, I the- had the script open while I was okay. watching it and. It was it. It was a moment of watching him go from complete control of himself to complete out of control while falling down. You know, and, and I, I don't, I couldn't do that. So watching him do it was pretty spectacular. And, and I love the way it's edited. So it's got slight jumps in it, moving from mm-hmm. between the action. It's it's the same shot, but they've just taken bits of it out. And it's got that real vibe of, yeah, you know, when, when it really major things happen, it does feel like people are just suddenly jumping around and, you know, you're not sure what's actually going on. It, ah, it, it, it's really disorienting. It's excellent. And then him playing a, an older man in the hospital on respirators. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. Yeah. No, I don't know why he wasn't nominated either. There's, there's some other good people nominated to be fair. Jeremy Irons won. Kevin Costner was nominated for Dancer with Wolves. Robert De Niro for Awakenings. That is a very good performance. Uh, Gerard Depardieu for Serrano de Bergerac and Richard Harris for The Field, which I've not seen. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I feel like he should be on that list. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why he wasn't. But but talking on the on the editing, I, I do think, because I think it was nominated for editing and cinematography. Yes. Over and above the writing and some of the choices in, in what everyone does. This is a film that looks incredible. Yes. There's, there's a couple of moments that have a sort of, you, you can get the vibe of the 90s style, um, particularly in the assassination sequence. 
that kind of fast cuts of action and people running and so on. But generally there's, there's quite often sort of sweeping camera movements because there's so much going on in the scene. It's trying to take it all in and show you where everyone is. Uh, the, the, the editing going from moment to moment, it, it feels like it always goes at a good pace. There's never a point that feels like it slows down too much. And then some of the, the, you know, really tense scenes, you get the good stuff we had in that first film, definitely, where you get close ups of people and you really see what's going on with them. Such as the end where he gives his, uh, wordless scream. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a well made film. So what else did you really like about it? I, I think we, we've mentioned the actors and you talked about her, um, Connie killing Altabello. Eli mm-hmm. Wallach as Altabello is incredible in this. Yes. He is every bit the charming old father. Oh, grandfather. Oh, you're so, so happy. Oh, you're so, you know, you're like a man of 60 because you're so fun and it's so nice. And you're, you're a doddery old man who just wants to be happy and peaceful with the people around him. Mm-hmm. And then you get a couple of scenes where you see him scheming. Yeah. And you think, wow. This is a guy who's putting on the act very, very well. Um, and particularly when you get the piece where he meets with the assassin. And it, he continues to do the slightly doddery old man thing of, oh, do the donkey impression for me. Oh, I remember when you were small and all this. And then he schemes and he, he talks Italian incredibly well. I, I, I would love to know whether he could speak Italian already because it's, it doesn't come across like someone who's learned lines or, or had to pick it up as a second language. And then right. once he's done the deal, he goes back into the old man and he picks up the, the, the bread and smells it. And, oh, the olive oil from Sicily, like the best you can only get. Oh, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it becomes creepy through scenes like that. <laughs> when, when right. you see the rest of it and you're like, wow, he is putting on a front and no one is seeing through it. And only mm-hmm. Michael has a suspicion and doesn't know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, even I wasn't sure at first when he had that the line treachery is everywhere. Mm. Like it was it was subtly done and so I left that scene wondering is Alto Bello trying to tell Michael that Neri is the traitor or is he just really elaborately trying to cover up for himself and it's him? Yeah. Like that's how I came out of that scene feeling and it turned out it really was him Mm. um and so for michael to have picked up on it you know as a character living this not watching it from a formulaic movie perspective (laughs) i felt like it was really really good yeah and and i think that there's also something that it goes unremarked how good the performance is it tells you how good it is Mm -hmm. that he's such a a, a, an interesting character within it but that it doesn't stand out, whereas the other lesser performances or lesser well-written characters stand out. Yeah. Mm. And they never even acknowledge to Altobello that they know no. that it was him. Yeah. They just kill him. Like, he thinks it for a second because he makes Connie try the cannoli first. Mm-hmm. Like, he, you can see that he's cautious. But then when she does try it or fake tries it or whatever he just gets really excited and he just thinks that he has won yeah and then he dies yeah he even sees her watching him at one point mm-hmm. mm. is is that the cannoli with a bit of orange on the end 
Oh, come on. They totally leaned into the orange thing on this one. Absolutely. And that's the thing that makes me think it's not real in the first one, that it wasn't intentional. Or or if it was intentional, they did it too subtly, because in this one, it's not subtle. No, it's It's, not subtle at all. It's not subtle to the point when Michael confesses his sins and... Uh, that's the point at which he really starts reforming and becoming someone different. Mm-hmm. He drinks a big glass of orange juice. Mm-hmm. You know, he drinks the thing of death for everyone else. He ta- right. he takes it in himself. Where we've just had a, a a bit of dialogue about a stone not taking in the the liquid from that's around it in the pond. Right. It's again. It's it's not the most subtle, like some of the rest of the film. Well, I mean, they lingered the camera on a big bowl of oranges at the first big death scene mm. when Joey Zaza tries to take everybody out. He's holding an orange in his hand at the end when he dies. Yeah. When he slumps over, he drops an orange. Yeah. And, and it Not just makes me subtle. think they've gone, oh, people think there's oranges when people die. Well, okay, let's do that. Yeah. Not, oh, we did it in the first one and a few people have picked up on it. Great. Let's do it in the same way because they've just turned it up to 11 here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you might be right on that. Is like it? It was just a prop in the first one, and it, it made sense because Sicily, blah blah blah. Yeah. But you know, this one was made twenty years later when people have been talking about this thing. Absolutely. And so they put it in. Mm. We we talked in when we did the first one about the number of famous lines that came out of it. And then we talked mm-hmm. in the second one how it was surprising there weren't so many famous lines that came out of it. This one, I feel like, goes back to that. There are a number of very well-written lines, usually from Michael. Um, and again, particularly when he's giving advice to Vinny. Things like, never hate your enemies, it affects your judgment. Never let anyone know what you're thinking. Your enemies always get strong on what you leave behind. Um, and, and the great moment, and this is just before that stroke sequence, but... It is one of the, coupled with the the scream at the end, it is one of the things I always remember from this film is his moment of going, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Mm-hmm. And it, it is exactly right. It is what has happened to him all the way through these films. He has tried to do things, tried to go to legitimate, and something happens that causes him to have to revisit the old ways, in, including in this film where, um, is it Tomasino is shot? And so his bodyguard comes to him and says, you must help me take vengeance. And right. all he can do is the Sicilian code for, for him and his family and say, okay, and you will owe me a favor one day. Right. Like, yeah. he was so, you know, he was with Kay, talking about going legitimate, talking about retiring, and now he has to be Don Colleone again. And of course he was with Kay when that happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. From From the assassin who looks like an assassin. He looks like a bad man. I'm yeah. sure I'm sure an actual assassin would not look so much like an assassin. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Probably be a little more subtle, yeah. Yeah. Like John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd work as assassins because you wouldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, while we're talking all the people in this, I, I, I do think Joe Montana is very good as Joey Zaza because he is a little bit brash and too much and ineffectual. You know, Mike, Michael talks about him being, you know, he's just a hood, he's, he's small time, don't worry about him. And you can see it as well, but you can also see that he has niggled at everyone around him mm-hmm. into thinking he's either more or someone they want to kill. And I feel like that's actually quite a nuanced performance to get 
to get that just right, particularly when he's used to playing like the gangster on The Simpsons, where he's a proper gangster. And I, he's done a few other parts in the same vein. And now he's got to do one that's actually a bit rubbish in some ways and a bit show off. But he does it very well. I, I, the character Joey Zaza is very believable in this. I think so. Mm. Yeah. He is. He wants to be Michael. Mm. But he and he thinks that he is on his way to becoming Michael because he has been given charge of this area, these dealings that Mm -hmm. used to be Michael's. But he doesn't understand that he didn't earn anything like Michael did. And so he's just very brash and crude and tries to take it by force. Yeah. Which is a little bit how Vinny was to start with Mm. until Michael took Vinny under his wing and taught him. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And and finally, just the comedy of Al Pacino. He does get a few very good moments in this. And again, I think mm-hmm. I think it's more not necessarily comedy, but it's it's characterization that he is always top dog. No one can say anything back at him and, and make him look a bit foolish and put him down, question what he's doing. He always has a comeback. But sometimes his comeback is funny. But it's still He is a charming guy. Oh, absolutely. But he always ends up as, no, I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking particularly when you have the singer at the beginning, whose name I've completely forgotten. Somebody Fontaine. Johnny Fontaine? Yes. So, yes. so, And obviously that's been a recurring thing throughout the films. And Johnny Fontaine is a very important bit in the first film. And he comes at, at the end here and he sings a song. And, and, you know, Michael has work to do. He has business to conduct. So he's off to conduct it. And he's like, Michael, you can't go. I've learned this song for you. I, I want to sing it to you. And he goes, oh, no, no, I've heard it. I'm going to go to the kitchen and listen to some Tony ben- Bennett records. <laughs> and that's one. It's such a good put down. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. Let me do my thing. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. But even his own son, when his son corrects his pronunciation of the opera or the opera house, I think it is. Maybe the opera itself. The opera. Yeah. The opera, yeah. Um, he corrects him and he turns around and he says, oh, I've bought tickets to the wrong opera. <laughs> so, no, no, no. I didn't get it wrong how I said it. <laughs> I, I've i just, you know, there's two operas and this, there's another one with, with a very similar name. <laughs> he, he does, to be fair, say, you know, I've been in America too long or something. Right. But it is. I think it was adorable. It's It's the same sort of thing of no one has a better line than me. Come on. <laughs> and, it, and it's great. It really works as he is the godfather. He's in charge. No one questions him. Mm-hmm. He's the alpha around there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I think, you know, we, we've been through the bad. We've talked about the favorites. Uh, and when you actually then dig into the good stuff in it, there is a lot of good in here. There is. What the story is trying to do is very good. It's doing some interesting things. Some of the ways that it does it is very good and interesting. There's just always big stuff. Also big stuff that doesn't work as well yeah if they could have reframed this movie a different way and it would have made all the difference mm. they could have told the same story just differently like framed differently shot differently like you said opening with the opera um you know including more of Vinny's story just subtle changes like that could have made this absolutely best picture of the year mm. yeah because I mean, can you almost edit it? No, you can't edit it that way. Because if you edit the opera at the beginning, you're still opening on what seems to be a party. But actually, it's the end of the film. You're just seeing it first. 
Mm-hmm. But then you've still got to get the whole thing with the Vatican kicked off, which they kick off with a big party. So you can't then have another half hour of another party where nothing really happens yet. Right. We're just yeah. setting the scene for you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Godfather Part 3? We've been talking about this one for a while. Mm. Would you recommend this film to people? I, I think you would recommend the first two. I think you like them enough. Absolutely. Would you say watch one and two and three or watch just one and two i think that if you come out of two happy with how the story has concluded then you should stay there okay i think if you want to know more about michael and michael as he gets older you should absolutely watch this but understand that it's a pale comparison of the first two Mm. but it still characterizes michael really really well and it gives michael okay no it doesn't give michael the ending he deserves because i hate we didn't talk about this i hate that final shot so he is uh 1997 you know it's another 20 years on an old man alone for that scene like we don't know if he's actually alone right (laughs) yeah so it, it paralleled Vito's death but Vito died in an orange grove with his grandson. Yeah. You know, and Michael dies alone. Absolutely. And I I don't think Michael deserved that because I think Michael tried. At the very least, he tried to be better than Vito. Vito tried to be, not that Vito tried to be bad, but Vito tried to be the best Don that he could be. Hmm. Michael tried to be the best caretaker of his family. In whatever form that took, you know, and he tried and he tried and he tried over and over again to get out of the mafia life and to become legitimate. But because he had this background and this code of the mafia, he kept getting pulled back in to take care of his family. And so, yeah, he did really awful things. Yes, he ordered his brother killed. He didn't deserve where he ended up. And I hate that they did that. So Everything up until that, like if they had ended with Mary's death, I would have been much more okay with it. Mm. Okay. Because I, 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 I like the comparison with Marlon Brando's Don Corleone's death. Mm-hmm. That is really nice to show that one died happy, enjoying his time with his grandson, and the other died sat on a chair on his own. But at the same time, like that's just a clip. We We don't know if, you know his family of adoring <laughs> grandchildren of people were inside getting lunch ready yeah, or something. Yeah, that's true. Um, so it's a, 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 you take this scene on its own, it doesn't really tell you anything. And I think, again, it's a pale imitation of the ending of Godfather Part 2, where he sat on a bench looking out over the lake on his compound alone with his own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And and I, uh, you can't do that shot again, but that shot is the better ending for him. Yeah. You know, something to show that he is just alone, but with his thoughts and with the darkness around him. And I, I don't quite buy it from the, uh, from the shot that we get here. It would have been a better shot if we had seen his family in the background, not paying any attention to him, not seeing him slump over, but there. Yeah. Like separate but there, mm. I think. It, yeah, could it have been, we see him walk through his house and there's no one there and it's clearly him living on his own. 
and he sits on a chair and then slumps over. Or we don't even have to see him die. We just see him sit on a chair and he has driven everyone away through his actions. Yeah. Mm. I, I do like the way they use the flashback to Fredo at the beginning of this film. Again, to inform you if you've forgotten or, or you, you know, you're coming to this fresh. But to show that even when he's getting this award, his issues with Fredo are first on his mind. Yeah. That's the thing that, that makes him suffer. And, and it works when you get to the stress and the, the diabetic stroke and finally giving his confession. It, the, the emotion and the weight of it on him, it works very well. Mm-hmm. If, if the point of this is making him pay for his sins, they get his sins across perfectly. Absolutely. Mm. They do spend a lot of time doing flashback in this movie. Mm. And I think it was done well. Yeah. I like agree. going back to, um, Apollonia. Mm-hmm. I still can't say that name right. You know, mm. calling back to Apollonia several times, calling back to Fredo. Um, the final scene after he dies, they flash back to him dancing with Mary. Apollonia, uh, Kay, oh, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Mary. You get all three scenes. Um, and, and I thought that was done nicely. And it, it shows that this, the last scene of Michael's life or the last act of Michael's life had a lot of retrospection in it mm. for Michael, I believe. I I think it was good. I think the execution was not great. Yeah. yeah. That's where I end up on it. I, I'd forgotten about the flashback to Apollonia when his son sings for him. And and mm-hmm. again, the emotion of that, Al Pacino doesn't do a lot. It's relying a lot on, on the flashback to inform it. But it, you really feel how sad he is and, and what that's bringing back to him, you know, being in Sicily and thinking of her again. Right. Um, oh, yeah. And, and and I think it's appropriate because otherwise you would go, well, no, he had another wife. He had someone he was actually in love with. Why is Kay still this? You know, she just seemed to be a convenient thing from the way he treated her at the end of the first one and in the second one. Mm, maybe. Mm. I do think he loved her in his own way. I, I think so, but I... I think as charming as he is, he's not a... He's cold. So I don't think he would find someone else to love him in the situation he finds himself in. Okay, that's fair. Okay, so recommendation is watch the first two. If you want more, watch the third one, but don't feel like you have to. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I hope you've enjoyed listening to us talk for about four hours to get to that point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send an email to podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. We are 100% funded by our lovely listeners on Patreon. Anything you can give gives access to exclusive content, and it helps to develop the network and fund other shows. I just threw in loads of new verbs there. <laughs> to find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to visit the homepage, eloquentgushing.com, to find our other shows. And we will be back in two weeks with another episode where we'll talk about The Evil Dead with Erica from the Customers Also Watched podcast. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And now they'll fear you. I don't want them to fear me. <laughs> I don't think that's true. (laughs) Oh, wait, I've said that before, haven't I? Oh, yeah.